Well, many defense attorneys are going to want to spend time with their client simply sort of role-playing, asking questions that they think the plaintiff's attorney is likely to ask and hearing how you answer those questions and helping you to shape your answers in a way that is truthful because you are under oath. You you know, you don't want to commit perjury. That's a crime and you don't need to be accused of a crime here. So they're going to want you to be truthful, but also to answer the questions in a way that makes sense for your defense. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to episode 137 of APM Success. I'm very pleased to be joined again by Dr. Stacia Dearman, who joined us last week. Last week, we had her share about her firsthand experience in navigating a malpractice lawsuit and the way that that experience has broadened the scope of her life's work at this point, from medicine to now working with physicians who are party to malpractice and helps to equip them for that journey. Briefly, listeners of this podcast, Dr. Dearman gave us a special promo code for one of her courses meant to equip doctors in this way. So she has a course called Deposition Magic. You get a 10% discount if you enter discount code APM success. So really excited to be able to offer that to our listeners. If you want to see the links and the details, go to apmsuccess.com slash 137. There will be the code there and the link to the course. Dr. Dearman, welcome back. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you. To kick us off, maybe share a little bit about what is Deposition Magic? That is, you know, you've put a lot of time into creating that course for doctors. Sure. It is a completely streamable online video course. So it's available to people 24-7. It covers some useful information regarding particularly the early stages of a malpractice lawsuit, what your defense attorney needs from you. It also sets you up for success at deposition because many attorneys like to say that many malpractice cases are won or lost at deposition, which doesn't mean that you literally win or lose right there, bam, bam, boom, but more so that how the defendant's deposition goes will powerfully impact how the case ultimately unfolds. So in this course that I've designed, I took the time, actually had a wonderful opportunity to talk with a woman who was a former personal injury attorney married to an EM physician, got inside the head of personal injury attorneys with her help. So in the course, we talk quite a bit about what is that plaintiff's lawyer's mindset? What's their strategy? What are their goals and their tactics? What's the role of your defense attorney? And above all, What is the purpose of your deposition, your role there, some of the types of strategies that that plaintiff's attorney may throw at you, and helpful ways to respond to them. It's not meant to replace your work with your defense attorney in preparation, but rather to really set you up to maximally benefit from the time you spend with your attorney and really go in and and sort of master your deposition. So for any listeners, you know, check that out, apmsuccess.com slash 137. The details will be there. 
And today we're going to talk with Dr. Dearman about, you know, last week we heard her personal story of what it's like to walk through this suit and the human experience of that, as well as what she's observed in coaching and counseling many doctors who have also walked that road. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Dearman about the nuts and bolts of how a malpractice proceeding unfolds and what to expect as a physician going through that. And by way of preface, I, I have a bunch of Google alerts set up for all sorts of terms related to the specialties of anesthesiology and pain management and some other topics of interest to me. I happened to notice just this morning, there was a headline about an actor, his name is Bill Paxton, and his family reaching a settlement with an anesthesiologist in LA County for a million dollars, where in this case, the group decided to settle with the, the plaintiff, which was the, the wife and children of Mr. Paxton, who passed away a few years ago after a surgery and the group is you know maintaining that there's no liability in this matter but they wanted to put things to bed and so there was that settlement so this is you know it's something that happens <laughs> literally just today there was this, this came up and so we want to i'm curious to understand better how this unfolds and what a, a doctor can expect so maybe start from the beginning dr dearman and just describe what people can be expecting so well i I really, really like to start from the beginning because I'm aware that many physicians that practice who practice in the United States may not have even grown up in the United States, or even if we did, we may have very little familiarity with the court system. So I would say, let's just start from truly the most foundational place and start by asking ourselves who the players are who are involved in a malpractice lawsuit. Because you'll quickly encounter that language if you're sued, and it's helpful to know what the words mean. So the people who are involved, first of all, there is the plaintiff. Now, that might be a patient who believes that someone made an error that caused them harm, or it might be someone representing that patient, as in the case that you just described of Bill Paxton, right? It's his wife and children who have come forward as the plaintiffs. And those plaintiffs are going to find an attorney. We might call that person the plaintiff's attorney, or we might call them a personal injury attorney. Those are, those are very synonymous in this type of situation. And then if after reviewing things, that personal injury attorney thinks that this is a lawsuit worth filing. There are many, many, many they turn away, by the way. They don't file them all. But if they feel that it's a lawsuit worth filing, they will file that with the court system. And whoever they have named as the people who are being sued then are known as the defendants. So in the case where I was sued, I was the defendant. I was not the only defendant, but I was the lead defendant. There were actually three physician defendants in that case. And, and I know, then oh, there's, I'm, oh, go I'm, ahead. I was going to say, there's there can often be um, sort of the what I call the shotgun approach, which is name everybody <laughs> as a defendant, in particular, the parties with the most, the deepest pockets. Because if you, you know, sue the, the surgery tech, maybe they did something that was, you know, uh, negligent, but you know, if they don't have a lot of money, then there's not much that you're going to get as a claimant, as a as an injured party in that case. That's right. Typically, the defendants are going to be physicians. Occasionally, in this day and time, there are nurse practitioners, physician assistants, CRNAs being sued, but it's usually physicians, hospitals or healthcare systems, or occasionally other facilities like nursing homes, 
rehab facilities, those sorts of, of healthcare organizations. But among healthcare providers, it's usually physicians. So, so you've got your defendants, and then you've got defense attorneys, maybe one or more, depending. Then there's the judge. The purpose of the judge, they're, they're assigned to the case right from the beginning, even though as a defendant, you may not know who they are. Their role is to see that the case is progressing along what the courts consider to be a reasonable timeline, which to you and me would feel very slow, but it that's the way the courts function, and according to proper proceeding in that jurisdiction, right? That things are progressing in a way that that fits with the law. So those are kind of the players. Can I ask a quick question? I'm curious. I was Absolutely. in researching a bit about this prior to this discussion. Plaintiffs' attorneys, so someone representing the, the injured party or the decedent, the family of the decedent, the person that died, do they often, is it common to take these cases on contingency, meaning they only get paid if there's a monetary judgment? Almost always, that's how they work. Yes. So if there is a settlement or judgment, I've been told that on average, about 40% of that money will go to the plaintiff's attorneys. And one of the, I guess, criticisms of that sort of construct is that there's no downside to just trying to file a lawsuit because there's no cost to the, the person who experienced the bad outcome. And, and so there's perhaps not enough skin in the game. The other argument, obviously, on the other side is that it doesn't make sense that only people who have money should be able to sue. So it's one of those sort of classic legal conundrums, but that that dynamic is a significant contributor to, I think, a, a very litigious nature of our society and especially you know the medical legal side of things. Yes. Yeah, I think that's true. Although I will say there is a huge downside to plaintiff's attorneys to filing lawsuits that will go nowhere because they will not be paid for the work that they and their staff do, right? And the documents they request and all of that. So I do think it is true that they do filter to some degree. They do not file every lawsuit that someone suggests they would like to have filed. And then the better the law firm, presumably the more picky they can be because the higher quality cases they have come across their desk. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. So so what comes next once we kind of understand the parties involved? Well, how about if I pull up a timeline? We talked about the fact that I have a little visual timeline. Let yeah, so for just... any listeners, this is another great opportunity. If you want to, check out the YouTube channel. You can also always view the visuals of our conversation. If you go to the link for this episode, which is apmsuccess.com slash 137, if you put a V as in video, after that number, so apmsuccess.com slash 137V, you can see the, the visual of this conversation and you can check out the slides that Dr. Dearman is sharing. That would be great. All right. So first of all, I want to give credit where credit is due and acknowledge that my own lawyer, lawyers who were at Buckingham Doolittle and Burroughs in Cleveland created this timeline together with me and we used it together in our public speaking over some period of time and they graciously have allowed me to continue to use it. So if we look at this image, I'll try to describe it so that those who are simply listening can can also take it all in. Everything begins over on the left with some sort of an incident. 
Now, if it's clear that an injury has happened, like let's say that within hours of a surgery, it's clear that a complication has arisen, then that moment becomes the incident. In other situations, however, the incident may only occur when the plaintiff, the patient, or their family member realizes something may have gone wrong, even if that something was quite some time ago. So a classic example there would be if a mammogram is read as normal, and then two years later, a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, and someone looks back at the mammogram from two years ago and says, oh, no, maybe there was some suggestion there that things were abnormal. Well, the point at which the diagnosis of breast cancer is made is the incident in that instance, right? Or in a surgical case, if let's suppose like a a surgical sponge is left inside a patient after the surgical site is closed, but nobody realizes that for some time, there are some complications that ensue and only over time do they recognize that there's a surgical sponge there, then it's when they figure out that that problem exists, that is the incident. And the reason why that matters is that when the incident occurs, the clock starts to tick on what's called the statute of limitations. And the statute of limitations is the period of time during which a lawsuit must be filed if one is going to be filed. When the statute of limitations closes, the plaintiff does not have the opportunity to file a lawsuit. It's usually on the order of one to two years. It varies from state to state. It typically is longer in cases where the patient died than it is in cases where they did not. So if the patient died and there's an allegation of, quote, wrongful death, unquote, you may in some states have a statute of limitations of two or three years, whereas if the patient did not die, maybe it's only one or two years. And then there's the very extra special case of pediatric patients where the statute of limitations is generally until that patient reaches the age of majority. So obviously that creates a real challenge for people practicing OB and pediatrics where something may occur at the time of labor and delivery and a lawsuit could be filed as late as prior to the 21st birthday. So a lot of time can elapse there. So at some point in that statute of limitations, if a lawsuit's going to be filed, then this complaint is filed with the court system, right? That is a step that is typically done by the plaintiff's attorney. Once that happens and another physician or I receives notification of that complaint, we're served, so to speak, then there's a limited window within to respond, within which to respond. Typically, that is less than a month. In some states, it's 21 days. In some states, it's 28 days. But a response must come in. If you miss responding in that window, the court will presume that you agree with the allegations in the complaint. 
So I think it's important for physicians to understand that because if you were to receive papers suggesting that you had been sued, then you do not want to pause. Even if that case happened years ago, you don't have years at this point. You need to get on the ball, right? And usually the best way to do that is to reach out immediately to your malpractice insurance carrier, or if you're embedded in a hospital system, maybe an employee of that hospital, reach out to the hospital risk manager. And one of those two entities will take over and guide you through the process. Sometimes people learn that they've been sued actually first from the risk manager or from the malpractice carrier. The indemnity carrier may give you a heads up. You're going to get some papers and we're aware. And so in that case, you know, they're already all over it. But you want to make sure that somebody is working on that response for you. And that somebody is a defense lawyer. Usually that defense lawyer is someone who routinely works with your malpractice carrier. They're not typically an employee of the malpractice carrier, but they're someone, they have a working partnership. These uh, large indemnity carriers have what they sometimes call a stable of defense lawyers. So they get out a horse and put you on it. (laughs) So then you've got your defense lawyer. This response is filed. And that's where the process begins. At that point, the next step is that the lawyers on either side and a judge typically will meet and have a case management conference. And that is an opportunity to just clear up some of the most basic things, not waste the court's time with the most fundamental matters. And At the case management conference, I think part of their purpose is to set deadlines by which discovery must take place and really just kind of set a larger calendar for this lawsuit. Although the calendar may change at multiple points along the way, they're trying to to make things move along according to a timeline that seems reasonable to the court system, which is slow by our standards in the world of medicine, but, but it's there their timeline. And at that point, the case enters what's called discovery. So should I just keep talking or have you just had any questions thus far? I, okay. tell you what, let me ask, let me ask one question. So just sure. as it relates to what you've described already, I'm imagining what if you, obviously you as a physician, no one has a greater vested interest in a, you know, a favorable outcome than you do. Cause you're talking about your career and your dollars in, in some cases and your reputation. What if you're not happy with the lawyer that your insurance company suggests? Is there recourse there? That's a great question. Yes. What you can do is write a letter to your insurer indicating that you are dissatisfied with the performance of the lawyer and they have a vested interest in not having you sue them for inappropriate representation. I have known defendants who've taken the step of reaching out to their malpractice carrier to say, I'm not happy with this person or the work they're doing thus far. I'm not comfortable with them for whatever reason. And I would like to suggest that I work with so-and-so instead. 
So they've asked for a change in defense lawyer, and they've suggested a concrete name. And I think generally speaking, the malpractice carriers are happy to try to comply in that regard because they want the defendant and the malpractice defense attorney to have a good working relationship, right? So yeah, you you do have some degree of recourse. But the, it's the carrier that bears the cost of representation in this case, right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Part of what you're paying for in your malpractice insurance premiums is the cost of defense. So not only whether there would be a payout or not, but the cost of defending the cases. So the defense lawyers and the indemnity carriers, and typically hospitals and health systems, often will have very good working relationships through which they navigate these cases. To you and me, it's a rare event. To them, it's what they do all day, every day. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about discovery. And I was, I'm really, I'm glad for this granular description because as I said before this call, I didn't really know what a deposition was until I started watching Suits a few years ago. This is really interesting and helpful. I think most physicians really don't unless they're married to a lawyer maybe, or have been through it themselves, they really don't have a lot of detail about this process, mostly because we had other things we were doing and studying. And most of us stayed out of trouble with the law in our younger years. We're pretty studious and hardworking, right? So the whole process can be pretty foreign. So once we enter the phase of discovery, in general, I would say discovery is the longest lasting phase of this whole process. Discovery, as the name would imply, is the period during which lawyers on both sides are going to make the effort to uncover all the facts of the case on both sides and uncover any other evidence that will be useful to them, whether that is expert opinions, because the courts rely on experts or people unassociated with the case, but who have expertise to define what the standard of care is or what a reasonable physician would do under the circumstances you found yourself under, right? So the discovery process begins with medical records, obtaining the medical records, reviewing the medical records, every possible record that might have anything to do with the case needs to be brought to the table. And the rules of discovery are such that what one side discovers, the other side is entitled to. Now, conversations you as a defendant have with your lawyer or that the plaintiff has with their lawyer, those are protected. You can tell your lawyer anything, right? But medical records and other outside evidence, if if it's discovered by one party, the other party is entitled to it. And that is just a fundamental principle of the American court system that's intended to ensure fairness. So they start with the records. And those records even may go so far as to include like billing records, the audit trail associated with the medical, the EMR, is a popular one for them to call upon these days. So there can be you know, quite a lot of sources of information, many, many pages of it. They will then often engage in what are called interrogatories. These are questions and answers in written form that move between the plaintiffs and the defense in either direction. Either party can send questions to the other one, 
to which they will receive a written response, right? Expert reports or, or impressions of experts is a part of discovery. And typically those are initially in written form and then deposition, like you mentioned. So um, deposition, yeah, go ahead. Let me ask a quick question. So you said like, you know, EMR audit trail is perhaps a data point that might be examined during discovery. I was just recalling the fact, I, I think it was in the context of like emergency medicine doctors have like, I forget the number, it's like 1200 clicks per day or per hour. I, don't, I forget the stat, but it's like an obscene amount of data entry into a computer that doctors do in the course of providing care. So I'm curious in your experience and what you've heard, you know, whenever you just create that much output, <laughs> surely buried in there somewhere is some pattern or some, there, there's something that, that you could perhaps that could look bad or could be damaging. Is that commonly a source of challenge or problems for doctors, th those types of electronic records, or is it does it tend to not be too big of a deal? Do you have any sense for the, that? Meaning is the audit trail commonly a source of problems or? Yeah, just because it, there's so much data created around the clinical experience. If you, you know, if you look through enough data trying to find a story, you can usually find data to support that story. So I'm curious if that's a common thread in prosecution. Mm -mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would say, well, first of all, obviously they're only entitled to the records that pertain to this particular case. So they're not entitled to view data in relation to all your records or right data related to other patients. They're just entitled to records related to this patient. But the audit trail captures things, for example, like whether you copied and pasted text or whether other people copied and pasted text. So I would I would encourage people to avoid copying and pasting. Now, with emergence, uh, with uh, EMRs, frequently we might use smart phrases or just dot phrases that import, let's say, a whole paragraph that describes something we routinely do, like a conversation we routinely have around, let's say, informed consent for a certain procedure right? I think those are totally fine to use. And in fact, you would go bananas if you didn't. But what you want to do, if you can, is make sure that the record you create for a given patient reflects the reality of the conversation you had. So tailor it a little bit if you need to. I would say another place where the, the plaintiffs really want to look at the audit trail sometimes is whether there's any hint that you altered the record after the patient's bad outcome was known. So obviously, we've all been taught, and I would just strongly reinforce that you do not want to let fear drive you to do something that is otherwise ethically questionable. If the record is incomplete when a bad outcome occurs, and that can certainly happen if things are happening quickly, then what you enter into the record needs to accurately reflect, you know, that you're looking back, for example, at the time we were doing the following, we were thinking the following, then this happened. And so we responded in the following ways, right? 
So just make sure that it all appears very truthful. And then last of all, I would say that something the plaintiffs are often fixated on in recent years is whether you went back into the record, even though you weren't caring for the patient after a bad outcome occurred. This came up at my own trial. Now, my patient had been, we talked about this last week, but just to kind of summarize, I had discharged a patient home. The next day she arrested and was admitted to the ICU at the hospital where I practiced. It would seem quite natural and normal, I think, to any physician and even to the jury, ultimately, that I was deeply concerned and interested in how she did once she was in the ICU. So I looked at her record once she was in the ICU, and I did not feel that that was wrong. I was very concerned about her and very distressed about what had happened, right? Nonetheless, plaintiff's attorneys frequently will try to imply that it's wrong to be going into that record. You went in there to alter things in some way, right? They'll just try to cast dispersions. So as much as you can, it might be better to not go back into the record if you're no longer caring for the patient. And if you feel that you need information about that patient, get it some other way through some third-hand party, such as your risk manager, for example. They can certainly go into the record with you, and then your audit trail is, is protected. So after the, the written interrogatories are received and processed, what happens next? So typically then, things do proceed to the scheduling of depositions. And depositions are basically a type of a conversation. They usually happen in a boardroom, which could be at a law office or at the hospital, someplace where a group of people can gather in a quiet space, usually around a great big conference table. Typically, the people who would be present at a physician's a physician defendant's deposition would be that physician defendant, their defense lawyer usually will be sitting on one side of them. In my case, my defense lawyer was on my left to my right and kind of around the corner of the table. So he was sort of facing me was the plaintiff's attorney. And between him and me was the court reporter, because that person is going to be taking down a transcript of the conversation and needs to hear every word. Sometimes there will also be a court videographer. It's very common these days for there to be a video record of depositions. And in the last couple of years, it's been very common for depositions to be conducted over Zoom and recorded in that way. The deposition is basically a question and answer session where in the case of the defendant, the plaintiff's attorney is asking almost all the questions and the defendant is providing all the answers. Now, there's only one person in the room who's under oath and it's the defendant, right? You're under oath exactly as if you were in a courtroom. And in fact, the process of a deposition, it might as well be happening in a courtroom. It is that much a part of the legal record and that important to the case. And it is that essential that you're well prepared for a deposition and that you know how to be absolutely truthful in a way that 
best serves your own defense. There are kind of rules of engagement of it at a deposition that it serves physicians to understand, which is why I created my course, because these rules are not intuitively obvious at all. So your, your plaintiff's attorney is going to ask often hours and hours worth of questions, which you will answer. It's conceivable that at the end, your own attorney may ask you a few clarifying questions. So they're typically very limited in number. If the case involves multiple defendants who have multiple defense attorneys, those other defense attorneys will typically also want to attend your deposition because they have a vested interest in hearing what you might have to say about their client right? So those other folks also may want to ask you a question or two, typically not much, but they may ask you point blank whether you think that the person they're defending, you know, whether you feel that that person failed to meet the standard of care or did anything wrong, or they'll, they may ask you a question or two just to kind of get, get a pulse on what your, what your answers might be on that type of matter in a courtroom. And then the plaintiffs themselves have the right to attend your deposition. In other words, that that patient or their family, I think more commonly they do not. So I would not expect them to be there, but worthy to be there, that is their legal right. And similarly, you have the legal right to attend their depositions although I don't necessarily think that you should. I, I would rely on your defense attorney's guidance there, but I don't think you need to, to do that to yourself. So because of how important this deposition is, you said it's like it's basically like, you know, for legal purposes, like you're in the courtroom because this is part of the record. I'm sure there's a lot of preparation that goes into this first round of court, especially because this is the first, for many doctors, this is the first time they're going to be like, you know, under the gun. Yeah, might be the first and, time and they're ever being deposed. Accused- yeah, right, exactly. And so talk a little bit about how a good attorney would prepare their client to go through a deposition. Well, many defense attorneys are going to want to spend time with their client simply sort of role playing, asking questions that they think the plaintiff's attorney is likely to ask and hearing how you answer those questions and helping you to shape your answers in a way that is truthful. Because you are under oath, you, it, you know, you don't want to commit perjury, that's a crime, and you don't need to be accused of a crime here. So they're going to want you to be truthful, but also to answer the questions in a way that makes sense for your defense. We as physicians on the daily, when we are discussing cases together, especially if it's a case that's a little unusual, we speculate among ourselves about, well, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. I don't know why she did that. What do you think? That is not the type of fodder that you want to bring to a deposition. And so I think for me personally, some of the most important training my attorney provided was helping me to focus in on what was known so that I could testify to what was known and what was actually unknown and testify to the effect that I don't know right? If I'm embarking on speculation, the truth is, the only known truth is that I don't know. And I need to be prepared to say, I don't know. So they're going to help you to learn to be brief, to be truthful in the way that the oath you've you've taken requires of you, and to answer the questions in a way that hopefully doesn't open up 
additional cans of worms for you, right? I would encourage people who are being deposed to also bear in mind that there is very little value in throwing any other healthcare worker or physician under the bus. Like, unless it's a question of your outright lying, there is nothing that a plaintiff's attorney would like better than for the, the defendants or the, the healthcare providers involved in a case to start throwing mud at each other and just blowing the case even further up than it already is. So I would work very hard to, you know, first of all, be humble and acknowledge that each of us makes the best decisions we can in real time. And sometimes what looks like it should have been an obvious choice in hindsight is not an obvious choice in the moment. And just be very, very careful about speaking in a way that might be perceived as derogatory of the care anyone else has provided. After depositions, what happens next? So there are quite a, quite a number of depositions collected usually because they do need to collect those of any and all defendants, those of the plaintiffs, and sometimes people associated with the plaintiffs. So let's say you might have spouse and then that spouse's mother and father or the patient's mother and father, and then you might have adult children or you might have the best friend or the employer or, 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 right? So you've got all that network of people. And then on the defense side, you may have the physician defendant. There may be nurses who are deposed, even though they are not defendants, if they are familiar with some of the facts of the case, or they did some charting or provided some care to the patient, they may be asked to provide deposition testimony. And and basically using that tool, it's kind of like archaeologists brushing away the dust. The attorneys on both sides are trying to piece things together. Then they're going to send some of those materials over to the expert witnesses, the paid physicians usually, not necessarily all physicians, but the paid experts who are going to offer expertise that's relevant to the case. And those people may have provided written reports and they may also be deposed. All right. So you can envision this really can extend over quite a period of months. And if you look at this slide that I have here for those who can see it up at the top, you see a bracket that says one and a half to four years. That is the typical duration of a malpractice lawsuit in the United States. And right now I'm hearing more like four and a half years because COVID has slowed the court system down. So that's average. So these are very slow moving processes. But once all that data has been collected, I think what happens next is the case moves along one of three pathways. In a small percentage, about 10%, the case will go to trial. The much more common outcome is that either certain defendants or perhaps even all of the defendants will be dropped. Potentially, the case will be dropped altogether based on all the information that's come in. The personal injury attorney, plaintiff's attorney may conclude, this is not a case we can win. Although what happened to this patient is terrible, 
even my own experts are hesitant to say these doctors failed to meet the standard of care. So then the case may be dropped or a case may be settled, in which case lawyers on both sides, typically with the input of the malpractice insurance carrier or the risk manager, the hospital involved, will negotiate a financial settlement. So in the case that you described earlier that you saw in your Google alerts, that's what they're saying. They're saying they negotiated a settlement. And in fact, the National Practitioner Data Bank does say that settlement shall not be construed as a presumption that malpractice or a failure to meet standard of care that caused an injury actually occurred, right? Sometimes settlement is the the best way to resolve the case. And so it is more common than going to trial. And then there are sort of these tiny number of cases that will go down alternate pathways like mediation or arbitration, but really the majority are settled dropped or go to trial. Can you describe a little bit? Well, I want to talk about settlements and then we can talk about the trial. You know, it's it's funny. This is like a, a classic negotiation. I've read a lot about negotiation. I'm very interested in, in it in a number of different contexts. And this is like a, a classic one where the, you know, somebody could be, there could be a zero that, you know, distinguishes one offer from another, like a bit, a big gap in terms of how much we think this case is worth. So can you talk a little bit about what you've seen as far as how that unfolds? Well, first of all, the part of the process is that at this point, the the plaintiffs have attempted to establish that someone did not do what another reasonable doctor or healthcare system would have done under the same or similar circumstances. That's the first thing. They've tried to establish that you had a duty to care for the patient, that you deviated from the standard of care, and that the deviation caused harm to the patient, and that that harm can be codified in financial terms. Okay? So those financial terms are identified as damages. And one of the kinds of experts that participates in this whole process is typically a damages expert. That is a person, frequently they're they're not a physician at all, they're like an economist or sociologist who gathers information about the lifetime costs or financial losses that may be associated with the injury the patient sustained or the death, right? So so they're coming, the plaintiffs are going to come to the table with a high number, right? Because I mean, they certainly don't want to bid low. The defense is going to come in with their own number. In my experience, the physician often has very little role or no role in that negotiation. Other than that, some malpractice policies, a substantial number actually, have a consent clause whereby the malpractice carrier will not settle without the physician's consent. Okay. But assuming the physician consents to a settlement, those two parties attorneys for the plaintiff, attorneys for the defense, maybe the malpractice carrier are going to try to come to a number that they can agree upon to call this case finished. 
Now, the beauty of settlement, there are several pros to settlement. One beauty of it is that that number is reached in a controlled manner, right? They are hammering it out until they can reach agreement. Whereas if a case goes to trial and a jury comes up with a number, on average, when juries award damages, which is in a tiny minority of the cases, but when they do, they award higher amounts than settlement amounts. So for lawyers on both sides, there's an advantage to being done with the case. And for the plaintiff's attorneys, this is particularly true because remember that they only get paid if their client gets paid. So they generally would love to not have to go to trial and risk that they won't be paid at all for you know thousands of hours of work. Makes sense. Is there any anchoring at all? I'm curious around the sort of the limits of the policy. So I, I just happen to notice, you know, this judgment that I mentioned, the settlement was a million dollars. It's common to have physician malpractice be one million, three million, or two million, six million in terms of the the coverage that they provide in terms of malpractice protection. So to some extent, if you're a doctor, I, I think at least if, if you have a judgment that does not exceed the total amount of your coverage, then your policy covers the damages. Is that yes, accurate? That is correct. That is correct. And and that's part of the purpose of settlement is to stay in those limits, right? Protect, protect the physician. Now, I would I would like to say to your audience, I think as physicians, we have a lot of fears about the idea that our personal assets will be at risk. The and I'm sure that on a very rare occasion that may happen. But in general, the lawyers I have talked with, the defense lawyers say they have never personally see that, seen that happen. And I'm talking about people who've been practicing malpractice defense for like, if, if I were to put these four lawyers I know best together, we're probably talking like 100 cumulative years of practice. They're really experienced people. And they say that that is just exceedingly rare. So I don't want people to be worried that somehow someone's going to come after their personal assets. But oftentimes, the way a malpractice carrier protects a physician from that prospect is through settlement. So that can be an advantage for us, right? And then there are the additional advantages that you you bring things to a close. You don't have to go to trial. Trial is extremely stressful. Having been through a three-week trial, I can say I wouldn't wish that on anybody. So you bring things to a close and you start to be able to put it behind you. In the story that you described of these folks in LA, you know, we're talking about the potential for a trial involving the family of a famous man. Well, that is press that sometimes people don't want. So for them, a settlement may be advantageous. I also think that sometimes, even if we believe we provided that reasonable care that another reasonable physician would have provided under the same or similar circumstances, there can also be a feeling of, I, I, would like for this patient to have a settlement. Does that make sense? There can be a feeling of sadness that things just went wrong in a totally unexpected way. And so sometimes I think there is some peace of mind for the defendant in reaching a settlement. Makes sense. Yeah. I know we're, we're coming up on our hour here, 
if we if we talked about trials for a little bit and then try to wrap it up soon, does that work for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, cool. I'll follow your lead. Another asterisk, my my wife and her friends and all of our kids are at the Science Center and the Harvey Family Roadshow will probably be rolling in the door here in the next <laughs> 20 minutes. So okay. if all that right, happens, so. I'll just mute on my end and we'll try to just conclude things <laughs> as we reasonably can. Everyone that's knows good. that this is, you know, just people understand what's going on here, I think, in this day and age. So that's, I'm not too worried about that, but just FYI. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe what I'll do, if we know we're coming to the right end of the timeline where, uh, where we're at trial, I'm going to stop sharing so that people can see our faces a little better. Okay. So that's a helpful description of settlement. And, and that all makes a lot of sense. Let's talk a little bit in the time we have remaining about the trial sort of fork in the road and what a physician can expect when they go to trial. Oh, sure. You know what? Actually, before we leave settlement, I do want to throw one other thing out there that I want people to know. In some states, a settlement of any kind, a payout of any kind is reviewed by the state medical board. So if you're preparing to settle, I would encourage defendants to ask their lawyer or their risk manager what that will mean for them so they're not surprised right? You still have to go through the process and your malpractice carrier typically will continue to provide defense for you. Don't deal with your state medical board alone. Let a defense lawyer help you and your malpractice carrier will cover that typically. But I just want people to know that and any payout to a patient is reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank, even if it's through settlement. So just just know that. Yeah, one thing that I've heard, you know, for physicians who have uh, political aspirations, this is a, a complicated, you know, reporting requirements and how things seem and and what it means if you're sued and what it means if there's a settlement and how that can actually be like weaponized against doctors who who want to eventually move into policy. That's just one thing to be aware of, unfortunately, in the world that we live in that definitely work closely with an attorney to the extent that especially if you want to think about what this means down the road if you want to you know get into policy or or things like that so right right i think at each step in our lives and especially in a situation that's as difficult as this i would encourage people to lean into their integrity whatever allows you to come through this situation of the case with your integrity and your health and sanity intact to me constitutes a win that's what winning is right so could not agree more. Yeah. So trial. So, Let's talk yeah, a little about trial. Trial happens in a courtroom setting. There will be a judge and a jury. The role of the judge in, in the United States is to continue to ensure that things proceed according to the law and to manage the flow of events in the courtroom. The role of the jury is to listen to all the information that's presented to them and follow the instructions of the judge in terms of digesting that information and making a judgment on which direction their verdict is going to go. Okay, so it's the jury who is the arbiter of the facts, not the judge. And that's different in some other countries. So I think it's important for people to understand that. Now, we maybe could have said earlier on, but I think it's especially important if we're talking about trial, that malpractice litigation is a form of civil litigation, not criminal litigation. So no one has accused you of a crime if you've been accused of malpractice litigation and you're of malpractice and you're not going to be thrown in jail, right? 
It's really about the money and money that that patient feels would help them to deal with whatever their injury was. So in that context, the burden of proof falls on the plaintiffs to demonstrate that you failed to meet that standard of care and that that failure caused the injury. So the standard is what's called a preponderance of the evidence, not beyond a shadow of a doubt, like in a criminal trial, right? It's preponderance of the evidence. What that means is if the plaintiffs, if the jury believes that the plaintiffs have proved their case to a 51% certainty, the case should go for the plaintiffs. The verdict goes to the plaintiffs. If, on the other hand, the jury's impression is that the defense has proven their case to a 51% certainty, then it's a defense verdict. Does that make sense? It does. And so in the context of judgment, I, I would imagine that you know the 51% threshold is where we decide for the plaintiff and the, the judgment is $1 or something like that. And then if it's, oh my gosh, they really showed how negligent this doctor was, then that's where you get a bigger judgment. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I mean, I I don't think that that is how it's supposed to operate. I think that if the jury has the impression that their impression is that it's a 51 to 55% certainty that someone failed to meet the standard of care, then the next question they're asked usually on their form from the judge is, did that cause the injury, Right. Uh, they're kind of asked to walk through that logic. And if they conclude that, yes, there was a failure to meet standard of care, which resulted in the injury, then they're asked to examine the question of damages separately. So I don't think that the jury award is like on a sliding scale in that way. I think if they've concluded that, well, yeah, there was a failure to meet to do what a reasonable doctor would have done in the same or similar circumstances, then the damages is kind of a separate question, right? But it does have to be proven. The jury does have the ability to say, from the testimony we've heard, we do think this person had a failure to meet standard of care, but we are not persuaded that that was the cause of the injury. And then there's no damages, right? Then you're basically saying this person made a mistake, but it did not harm the patient. What else can you share about the courtroom experience, especially from someone who's gone through it firsthand that you can you know, help prepare for someone who's walking in there for the first time? I can only imagine that would be pretty overwhelming. A little bit. It's, a, it's an intense experience. I would really encourage people to view it as a full-time job if they're going into trial. Ideally even give themselves like the day before off, your lawyer is very likely going to want to meet with you even more than once leading into trial. They may hand you a stack of depositions a mile high and ask you to read them, read every page. They do not assign busy work. Do everything you can to prepare and and come in well-rested. And then I would encourage you to remember that there's a little bit of an element almost a theater to it in the sense that the jury is trying to judge not just the facts that are being presented to them, 
but they're trying to assess whether you fit their mental image of what a doctor should be. And interestingly, I don't think juries expect doctors to be perfect. What they want to see is a caring, conscientious, plain-spoken human being who who knows how to interact with other human beings. So I would encourage you to go in, first of all, you need to be dressed professionally. You need, I would say, if you're a defendant, unless your lawyer tells you otherwise, you should plan to be in the courtroom from start to finish every day of the trial, not just the day when you're expected to testify. You need to be there from start to finish so that the jury knows you take this seriously, right? that it's important to you, because I promise you the plaintiffs will be sitting at their table every single day. You need to be at yours every single day. You want to dress professionally, but do not go in looking ostentatious. So if you have jewelry or or suits or other things that are glitzier than an average middle-class citizen would wear, You do not need those in the courtroom. And I would even say if you drive a super duper fancy car, right, and which could easily be true for an anesthesiologist that they're driving the latest BMW or a fanciest Tesla, it might be to your advantage to park that away from the courthouse or the justice center or possibly park it at your lawyer's office and come to the courthouse with your lawyer. And then you mostly need to remember that at any moment, when the judge and or jury are in the courtroom, you're on display and need to just behave in a completely professional manner. Any place you might bump into one of them, that could be in the bathroom, could be at the Panera across the street on the lunch break, in the hallway. You have to be absolutely dignified and avoid speaking ill of the plaintiffs. You just really have to bring a very, very professional physician self to the courtroom and, you know, have that on display. I write a blog and in two of my most recent posts, I wrote about emotional self-management in the courtroom. And I think it really is important that, you know, you can't have the jury see you give your lawyer a high five. They can't see you looking angry at the plaintiffs. You really have to be just your most professional self. And over the course of days under that pressure, it is not easy, but it can be done. Any other parting words of wisdom, Dr. Dearman? I really appreciate your time today. This has been a a really helpful deep dive on another one of those topics that, you know, they don't cover this in residency or in med school. And I think that this is really invaluable. I guess my most favorite word of wisdom goes back again to what we talked about, about just bringing your integrity. So, you know, from start to finish, lean on your lawyer, lean on risk management, lean on the malpractice carrier, and know that this is happening to doctors in your community every day. It feels like you're all alone, but you're not. So seek out the support you need, find the support you need so that you really don't suffer any more than is absolutely necessary. Excellent. Well, for any listeners who are interested in Dr. Dearman's course, would encourage you to check it out. APMSuccess.com slash 137. We'll have all the, the notes there, so the cases we've referenced, Dr. Dearman's blog, and lots of other relevant info. As always, Dr. Dearman, thank you for your time today on APM Success. Thank you. My pleasure. 
If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.